Two and a Half Admins, episode 32. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, we've got a couple of things to plug. You've got yet another blog post, Alan. Yep, uh, we have one here on how to customize the FreeBSD kernel. Uh, so if you've ever wanted to build uh, a smaller one or build in certain features or uh, exclude certain features, there's a good article on how and why you would do that. Fair enough, well, we'll link to that in the show notes. And I'll also link to my two new albums. So that uh, strange noise that you hear at the beginning and the end of these episodes, I made that. That's not on these albums. They are a collection of stuff that I found on my NAS, essentially, that I've made over the last 15, 20 years. And I decided to finally release them. There's one kind of guitar rock type thing and one that's more, elect- well, completely electronic. They're called Noise with Guitars and Repetitive Nonsense. JoeRest.com slash music. And you can get them off Bandcamp or just get zip files if you want to use my bandwidth instead. So in the news then, the big announcement today was ARM V9. We don't have all the details yet, but this is pretty big. Yeah, so ARM V8's been around for a while now, uh, and I guess they're starting to talk about what the next revision will be. I guess we're up to technically ARM V8.5. Yeah. And ARM V9 is basically ARM 8.5, where all the optional features are now required, plus a bunch of new possibly game-changing stuff like these the basically uh containerization type thing although it's weird to call it containerization because it's really more about hypervisor isolation but not in the typical term hypervisor yeah we don't really know exactly what it is yet um it's definitely not strictly hypervisor arm has coined a new term for what they're doing they're calling it realms and it sounds more like old school solaris zones than anything else to be honest they're claiming that a realm is an isolated execution environment that can be accomplished with a tenth the code that a hypervisor requires. And it may or may not include traditional hypervisor as well, but the realm part is separate from the hypervisor part. And they have not really given a whole lot of detail yet on how they're accomplishing this or, you know, how it actually works. But their claims are that running your code or your entire operating system environment inside a realm isolates it from other realms, from the host itself, and even from the underlying hardware. Again, it's all very highfalutin right now. But uh, it sounds like they're saying that if ARM has its own version of Meltdown or Spectre, it's still not going to get you inside of a realm, which to me strongly implies that we're talking about something similar to, you know, AMD secure encrypted virtualization, where basically each realm is most likely encrypted with a separate key that's only available to, uh, you know, a security processor. So physics-based side channel attacks aren't going to work in between realms because you don't have the right key, you know, on and on. Yeah, and I think a little bit kind of the idea of extended page tables taken much further, where each realm basically has its own memory space in the the hardware page table side of it, so that one realm can't look at the memory of another realm. Whereas in a hypervisor right now on the host, you basically can look at whatever memory you want to. Yeah, again, unless you've got something along the lines of AMD secure encrypted virtualization, in which case you, in theory, might be able to, but it wouldn't do any good because it's encrypted with a key you don't have. Right, you could you could write gibberish into the memory of the guest, but you wouldn't be able to necessarily read it. Yeah. Now, the, uh, the other thing that is supposed to be possible with Realms is something that uh, ARM is calling attestation. You can attest the uh, state of an app that's in another realm, And again, you know, we're kind of left guessing here, but that sounds very much like a concept lifted from Microsoft's Secured Core PC initiative. Uh, They've got something called System Launch Guard, 
And what System Launch Guard does basically is, um, you know, you can make certain parts of your bootloader become read-only in RAM. And that allows you to verify at a later point that you truly did boot from, you know, code that you trusted. This also requires a special processor instruction, which on AMD is called uh, Skinit for secure uh, key init, I think. And it basically resets the processor to a, a given known state. So there's not really any way to screw with this. Now, this all sounds great for ARM's data center plans, right? Because uh, ARM and the data center is going to be a bigger and bigger thing. And they're basically saying in one fell swoop, you know, hey, we're going to offer all of the best features of all the, you know, best x86 processors out there. The thing that I find a little bit concerning is that this doesn't appear to be just for the data center ARM processors. It also looks like all of these features are going to be available on, you know, the Cortex 10 series. And ARM is probably going to be, I don't know, pushing sounds pretty aggressive, but let's just say they're going to be pushing for those features to get adopted, you know, in the ecosystems that we're used to, like, you know, Android and iOS. Well, I can definitely see the use case on Android if each app ran in its own kind of realm, Mm -hmm. that it means that this app can't, if I get a bad app on the phone, it can't muck with stuff it shouldn't have access to. Hopefully, but that goes both ways. That also means, and bear with me here as a giant, dirty, false hippie, but that means that now let's imagine that this ecosystem has been in place for a couple of three years. And when you get apps now, like you don't even actually get the app. Uh, the thing that you download is really just a downloader that creates a realm and then within the realm downloads the actual payload. You literally never even get to see a line of the actual code that's running on your phone when you install this app. You don't get to know what it would do in theory. You don't get to know what it is doing while it's on your phone. All you really know is there's this realm that says it's doing this one thing and you yeah short of hooking your phone up to a network where you can do packet inspection which won't do you much good because that's all going to be end to end encrypted as well you have no idea what that's doing or what's going in and out of it yeah and you have to think about custom roms and custom operating systems because we're going to see more and more laptops and desktops following in Apple's footsteps here, aren't we, with ARM system on a chips in them? Right. Well, I think even just back to Jim's example for a second, the problem I think we've already started to see on Android with trying to use tools like SyncThing and so on is they want to lock it down so that the apps don't have raw access to a file system. They just have access to some service to say, show me what photos are on this phone. And if you're allowed, you can see some photos or whatever. But it does end up limiting what you can do uh, in a lot of cases. And we get into much more of that walled garden thing that we're kind of concerned about. And you have terrible permission creep, you know, because I mean, th- that's the thing. These we're talking about phones here. These are going to go in everybody's pockets. And it's one thing to talk about what paranoid Jim or paranoid Alan or, you know, even paranoid Joe might be worried about with privacy concerns. But we've already seen for years in the mobile ecosystem that generally, you know, when a stupid app that says it's giving you a personality quiz wants access to all of your photos and your contacts and everything in the whole world, users just say, yes, sure. Why not? So when everything's inside a realm, and like I said, you know, very likely you never even get to see the code at all because it comes encrypted into a realm that's already been established to do the installation. You now have this thing that, you know, your grandmother has just blithely given access to all of her possible information just because she wants the cute game to work or the whatever. And even if it's, you know, Alan's grandmother or grandfather, he's not going to be able to look at that phone and say, oh, well, this is what that thing's actually doing. That's a little scary to me. Yeah, like I definitely see the use case in the cloud hosting environment and 
even that there are some use cases for having it on my laptop and being able to have VMs that are, are more hardware isolated than we get right now. And I can see the use case for a phone, but I also definitely understand your concern there and say, I, I don't know that we want to push back against the technology, but we definitely got to push back on the phone makers. But the problem is there's a couple of big uh, monopolies now because we've already allowed ourselves to lose too much of it and end up in this walled garden situation where there are two phone OSs. Yeah, and you know, you install the Starbucks app on your phone uh, just to pick a random thing. I don't actually have anything against Starbucks, but like Starbucks has an app. You you put the app on your phone and you feed it your credit card and you get, you know, extra points to eventually get free coffee with or whatever when you use that in the drive-thru. If that thing asks for, you know, permissions to get your photos, you know, what, what what's it doing with it? Most people are just going to say yes. You know, that that's what I need in order to get the app and get my coupons. Yes. Especially since in almost all those apps, it is give it the permission or the app doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. And so it's like, yeah, thanks for telling me what it's going to do, but I, I, I can't stop it. And then, yeah, you know, you definitely get the worry of it's like, oh, Instagram now has access to all my photos. And now, oh, look, they're taking them all and running AI on them and doing facial recognition on everybody even though I didn't say that they could do that. Oh, but you did say you could do that, you know, because it's just a little checkbox when you download the app. And now it's looking through all your photos and it's scanning the app, looking for its product. It's on page 20 of 117 in the EULA. And you've allowed it to use your photos for marketing purposes. And it finds a photo that the AI says, you know, hey, there is our product logo in here. And this looks like a happy picture. And it goes out to the cloud and, you know, Maybe it was actually you start naked in your living room with the thing and nobody figures it out till it's on the internet. Or who knows? You don't know because none of this happens anywhere that you get to touch it. So we're not actually going to see ARM V9 until early next year at the earliest, so probably around about a year, let's say. Yeah, that's about right. I mean, it's still a little theoretical, um, but we should start seeing devices show up in early 2022. Your guess is as good as mine, you know, what drops first, the... Uh, uh, Cortex, you know, for mobile devices that we would normally see or the Neoverse V1 and V2. I guess the other feature they had, they talked a little bit about with the memory tagging extensions, which uh, when taken slightly further with the uh, Morello and, and Cherry things, which I also threw a link to the Morello stuff in the show doc. So Cherry is a modified version of RISC, which is what the, the architecture of ARM. And it basically uses 128-bit pointers instead of 64-bit pointers. but the pointers are still 64 bits, but the upper 64 bits are used for capabilities, basically permissions on the pointers. Part of it includes how long the pointer is, like basically how, how big the buffer is. And so it allows the hardware to basically prevent buffer overflow attacks. Because if you have a you have this pointer to this section of memory, which is normally just the start of the memory, and you can just keep writing, and if you go past, then that's a bug. But this will allow the hardware to actually say, no, you can't write past the endpoint of this buffer. But it also includes some cryptographic stuff so that you can't make up a pointer to a section of memory. So you don't need to worry so much about things like ASLR because you can't forge a pointer to point to some other section of memory. Whereas normally, you know, it's literally just an address. But because you put the cryptographic bit on the front of it, you can say, you know, this pointer wasn't generated by somebody who's allowed to generate a pointer to that. So you can't just make up a pointer. That also mitigates use after free, as well as uh, buffer overflows. Yeah, or just like unintentional sharing between things, exactly. Uh, the use after free means, you know, if you 
allocate it, free it, and then allocate it somewhere else, even if it's the same physical memory, you're going to get a different pointer. And so, yeah, you won't have the use after free problem uh, and a bunch of other stuff like that. The University of Cambridge in the UK has a fully working version of FreeBSD using this so that you can actually run unmodified applications like Python stuff or open SSH or whatever on this hardware. Although the hardware for it isn't coming until later this year, uh, but there's going to basically be an ARM chip that implements this stuff and you'll be able to run unmodified software in a way that's more secure. There are also going to be enhancements to the Mali GPU. Um, they're adding things like ray tracing and variable rate shading, which basically makes it sound like they're they're trying to bring the GPU side of ARM up to par with you know Nvidia and AMD as well. So they're they're kind of going all out at saying you know Intel and AMD, you better watch out. We're coming into your space and we're not doing it gently. Yeah, well, you know we've been talking about that uh, since last year that ARM is really going places now, and those places aren't going to be just Apple. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets, training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. I've just started my learning journey with CBT Nuggets, but I've already picked up tons of knowledge from the short and manageable videos in the Docker and Network Fundamentals courses. Their in-house trainers are active and certified IT professionals who add around 40 hours of new training to the course catalog each week so you can always stay current and up-to-date. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. So back in January, Ubiquity announced that they had had a data breach. This week, a whistleblower has spoken to Krebs on security and has claimed that the breach was far worse than Ubiquity let on. I think the official Ubiquity statement was something about a, you know, a third-party cloud provider had ex- accidentally exposed customer account credentials. But apparently the reality was that uh, attackers had managed to get full rewrite access to some Ubiquity databases that were running in uh, AWS. And that included access to the secret part of the um, two-factor authentication keys so that they could access things that require two-factor auth even without having the two-factor token because they had the secret for it. So according to the whistleblower, in addition to that, the attacker had access to the LastPass account of a Ubiquity IT employee who had root admin on all Ubiquity Amazon Web Services accounts, including all S3 data buckets, all app logs, all databases, all user DB credentials, and the secrets required to forge single sign-on cookies. So, I mean, it th- this is the whole kit and caboodle, according to the whistleblower. Yeah, that's the downside to something like LastPass or any password manager is that if they get the super key, that's, that's everything, but... Also, it just raises questions about their IT stuff if, if, you know, people have unnecessary access to everything. Honestly, this is a drum that I, it hasn't been that long since I beat this drum and I'm about to beat it again. The most concerning thing about this is that Ubiquity's response was to downplay and to say, oh, you know, it wasn't that bad. Everything's fine. And, you know, then you just keep hearing more and more about everything that happened. You know, anybody can get owned. I've been owned before. I got rolled up like a freaking rug and I think it was like 2010 
and uh, the attacker wanted access to a very high-profile client of mine and managed to get it because I was a younger and more naive person who had not been thoroughly owned yet. I made mistakes that the attacker capitalized on. And when they eventually got access to the high-profile client, they did it literally through my workstation in my home. But the difference there is that the way I responded to that was to immediately call every single client of mine and explain what had happened and what I was going to do to make certain that their systems were okay. You know, I didn't sit there and go, oh, well, you know, this happened, but like there was no problem. Everybody can just keep carrying on. According to the whistleblower, it was Ubiquiti's legal department that pushed back against informing customers more honestly about what happened. Well, that, that may or may not be, but either way, they listened to whoever pushed for that. So the whistleblower said that the security team picked up signals in late December that somebody with admin access had set up several Linux VMs that weren't accounted for. And then they found a back door that the intruder had left behind in the system to, to get, you know, repeated access. And uh, eventually the intruder said that they wanted 50 Bitcoin, which is uh, a little under $3 million in exchange for a promise to remain quiet. Yeah, and said that they had another backdoor, uh, but then Ubiquiti decided to not engage with them and found the other backdoor, supposedly, and closed it. So I don't know about this. Like, It is an unnamed whistleblower, so you can't necessarily believe it 100%, but if it is true, it's kind of the, the final nail in the coffin for recommending Ubiquiti gear, right? So... That's the question that I've seen people talking about in the various Telegram groups and everything. What do we go to now? Because Ubiquiti was good quality, affordable network gear. So what's the, uh, where do we go now? TP-Link, you say, Jim? Yeah, I like TP-Link. It's good stuff. It's cheap. It actually outperforms the Ubiquiti stuff significantly on Wi-Fi in my testing. And I tested the living crap out of it. Everything works like the the interface generally doesn't look as shiny as Ubiquiti's like, you know, the Unify web controller, but um, the TP-Link access points, they tend to be about 10 to $15 a piece cheaper than Ubiquiti, which I personally don't even care about because I already thought the Ubiquiti stuff was, you know, dog cheap. But, um, you know, you put up your access points, you can stand up a software controller on Linux or Windows machines. It's called Omata. Or you can buy a little cheap, dedicated arm box and a metal chassis, power over Ethernet, to run the controller natively so you don't have to set anything up. Unlike the Ubiquiti cloud keys, um, in my testing, the Omada hardware controller is crash safe. Uh, you can yank the power out of it all you want. And it won't corrupt the file system. Whereas with the cloud keys, about one time out of three, if you yank power on a cloud key without properly shutting it down first, it would corrupt the file system. Which is what you want after a power failure, right? Totally what you want, yeah. I have had very many, very annoying days because of those cloud keys. I learned very quickly not to deploy them myself, but you tend to inherit them because it seems so convenient, right? Like, why would I want to set up a server, you know, with the Unify controller on it when I can just buy the little cloud key and hang it off my switch on a little patch cord? And the answer is because, you know, the thing corrupts itself. But TP-Link has got a bit of a bad reputation for, like, really cheap, low-end gear, hasn't it? Not that I know of. Like, uh, I have some TP links here that had the right MIPS uh, CPUs and stuff where you could even run your own OS on them and do interesting stuff. Uh, so, like, I have a bunch that are running FreeBSD instead of Linux. But no, I found them to be quite good. All right, fair enough. TP Link absolutely has a, a reputation for being 
cheap in terms of inexpensive, but uh, I think you'll find amongst professionals, at least who have actually used it as opposed to, you know, the kind of people who are just like, if it doesn't say Cisco or Meraki on it, then, you know, I'm going to turn my nose in the air without actually knowing anything about it. Like if you talk to people who work in the small business space, uh, you'll find a lot of TP-Link fans. Um, I know quite a few VoIP vendors that like every place they go, it's TP-Link, Jetstream, Power of Ethernet switches, uh, managed that, you know, they're setting up VLANs and QoS on for the voice over IP phones, yada, yada, yada. The Wi-Fi access points are fantastic. When I was writing for the wire cutter and, you know, they wanted me to uh, find basically the cheapest good router that I could all the time. Uh, that was almost always TP-Link. They had a line, uh, Archer A7. Uh, now, it wasn't actually my top recommendation because it was so cheap. But like if you wanted a $70 router, you could not beat <laughs> that Archer A7. It wasn't just a little bit better than the other cheap routers. It was head and shoulders beyond. But if you go into like a bank or something and look at serious enterprise infrastructure, you're not going to see TP-Link stuff there. It's going to be all Cisco and stuff, right? Yeah, it's going to be Cisco or Meraki or, uh, you know, Ruckus or, you know, whatever. But it's not like the bank has a well-informed opinion over what the best IT gear is. They don't have budgetary concerns either. They're like, you know, we want the vendor who's going to put in the Mercedes nameplate on all the things in our nice shiny bank. And they don't really know or much care about what works better one thing than another, they just want everything to say the right name on it and make them look good. And as long as it doesn't break, then they're happy. Whereas they would not be happy with something that didn't break and worked fine that didn't look nice and shiny. Right. And have someone to blame if it didn't work or when it stops working. The reason you see Cisco deployed is because nobody ever gets fired for buying Cisco. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage, or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved my website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a Mumble server for our late night Linux community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash two and a half, get your $100 credit and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first class always available support. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Let's do some free consulting then. If you want to send your questions in for Jim and Alan, the best way is email show at 2.5admins.com. And thank you everyone who is supporting us on PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to learn more about that, then 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So Ray, who is a patron, who jumped the queue because of it, had this to say, I am a somewhat proficient Linux admin that just had my eyes fully open to FreeBSD, thanks to two and a half admins. I currently have a Linux Samba file server that is rapidly dying. What would be the 50,000 foot overview, not a recipe per se, just a good overview in order to quickly stand up a FreeBSD Samba box to have a place to get this data moved over, add users and get those folks on the newly built BSD box, then shoot the old server, of course. No frills on the box at the beginning, just enough to make it go. 
I would come back to it after duplicating it all on a dev box while doing my own learning and testing to make it better. From listening, I'm going to assume that I'll use all SSD for now rather than spinning Rust. So basically, make a zpool, whether it's your boot one or a separate one, depends on your setup. But you just package install Samba and set up your Samba config with basically a host name and what shares you want. And then set up the permissions. So you basically, you'd be able to copy the Samba config from uh, Linux to FreeBSD because they're both the same Samba software. So overall, the setup wouldn't really be any different. I think adding users and, and getting them into the Samba database is probably the only bit that might be slightly different. Yeah, you probably won't be able to just migrate the user config as is. Um, even if you could, in theory, figure out how to do it, it's gotten pretty difficult to find the TDB file in recent versions of Samba. And by recent, I mean like the last decade because I'm an old. Um, the other option, uh, y- you can absolutely do that. You can just stand up a FreeBSD box, uh, set up a zpool, set up Samba, and you know, do your thing. The, the other option you could consider instead of doing vanilla FreeBSD, you might install Zigmanaz instead. Zigmanaz, much like TrueNAS, is a FreeBSD-based NAS distribution. When you install it, uh, it'll walk you right through setting up your zpool. It will give you a nice, easy you know, web interface. It does some other things that are really nice for, you know, if your big use case is file service, Getting everything exactly right so that your or, you know, friends Windows boxes like, you know, Windows Explorer works properly with the permissions on your your Samba service can be a little tricky. Whereas if you start out with TrueNAS or ZigmaNAS, uh, it'll just work out of the box. So, you know, when your parent or spouse or whoever with a Windows laptop, you know, literally just wants to right click the file and set the permissions so that they have permissions, but somebody else doesn't. Instead of them accidentally stripping all permissions and all access to the file is broken until you shell into the box and, you know, chmod 755 or whatever, it will just work the way they expect it to. Yeah, I think there's an extra config parameter or two you put in the Samba to make the uh, ACLs work, which is one of the places where Linux was behind FreeBSD on ZFS. Although I think with 2.0, they finally have the NFS style ACLs, right? As far as I know, you still can't really get Windows. It's not just ZFS. No, it's specifically Linux doesn't have the concept of NFS v4 style ACLs. Yeah, with with Linux, um, you you could not really get proper Windows ACL mapping. In theory, you could turn things on in Samba to support it, but uh, like the Samba packages, at least in Ubuntu, did not seem to have been compiled with the necessary flags to enable those features. Like you could turn them on, but they did nothing. Yeah, my only experience is with doing it on FreeBSD and, you know, integrating with Active Directory so that the NAS box would basically have a computer account in the Windows Active Directory and be able to reuse names, passwords, and, you know, you could set the permissions the Windows way, exactly like you were you were saying. But Linux has had ACLs available for freaking ever, um, you know, on and off ZFS. Right. They're, I think they're the POSIX style, right? Yeah, but that's fine. You can map them in Samba. If you were to cowboy compile your own Samba from scratch, you could map them. But the the Samba packages that you find in distribution repositories, at least in Debian and Ubuntu, in my testing, they weren't functional. They hadn't been built with that functionality. So you could try it, but it wouldn't actually do anything. Right. But the, the original way ZFS was built for Solaris uh, used the NFS style ACLs, mm-hmm. uh, and those map more closely to Windows and are a little bit less of a headache. But yeah, in general, to stand up a Samba server, it's pretty straightforward. The Samba dot, or SMB4.conf or whatever file is going to be exactly the same. 
the only thing you're that's a little more tricky is doing the TSDB or whatever stuff to add Samba users to the Samba service and map them to the user accounts that exist in FreeBSD. Um, but there's plenty of documentation on how that works. Unix users are not really any different on on whatever flavor of Linux you were using in FreeBSD in the end. Uh, speaking of your phrase, in the end there, in the end, if this is a file server, I would really recommend stand it up with, my personal choice would be Zygmunaz, but um, if it's just going to be a, a file server, then use an as distribution. It makes life way easier. If you're like, oh, well, you know, I want to do all kinds of crazy extra things. Maybe I want to stand up some, you know, VMs and Beehive. Maybe I want to run Apache on it and do some web serving and just kind of a general play box. Then, yes, you just want to do vanilla FreeBSD and do your own thing. Right. And I think specifically from the question, it seemed like you needed something you could set up now and then over time work on building uh, the permanent solution. And so in that case, I would have to second Jim's point there, just grab one of the NAS distros and you can stand it up a lot faster while you work on in your VM on coming up with you know what your ideal environment will be in the end. But in order to stand something up that you can start migrating your data to ASAP, one of the NAS distros would probably make it a lot easier. All right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send your questions in, or on Patreon, of course. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.